Hello and welcome to Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster and today I'm speaking with the authors of Hidden History of Music Row, Elizabeth Elkins, Vanessa Alvarez, and Brian Allison. Nashville's Music Row is as complicated as the myths that surround it. And there are plenty, from an adulterous French fur trader to an adventurous antebellum widow, from the early Quonset hut recordings to record labels and glass high-rise towers, from your cheating heart to strawberry wine. Untangle the legendary history with never-before-seen photos of Willie Nelson, Patsy Cline, Chris Christopherson, and Shel Silverstein, and interviews with multi-platinum songwriters and star performers. Authors Brian Allison, Elizabeth Elkins, Vanessa Alvarez, dig into the dreamers and the doers, the architects and the madmen, the ghosts and the hit makers that made these avenues and alleys world famous. Elizabeth Elkins is a professional songwriter, a military brat, and she holds the degrees from the University of Georgia and Emory University. She's written for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Creative Loathing, Art and Antiques, and many others. She is president of Historic Nashville Incorporated and the author of the upcoming Your Cheatin' Heart. Vanessa is a professional songwriter and vocalist. She's a Texas native and she was a top 12 finalist on the second season of American Idol and received a Dora Award nomination for her work in the Toronto, Canada production of Hairspray. Together, Vanessa and Elizabeth are Granville Automatic, an alt-country band that has been featured in the New York Times, USA Today, and The Bitter Southerner. Their songs have been used in numerous television programs and films. They have written songs recorded by more than 75 other artists, including Billy Currington, Wanda Jackson, and Sugarland. They were the songwriters and residents at the Seaside Institute's Escape to Create program in Florida, where they wrote a Civil War concept album, An Army Without Music. Their 2018 album, Radio Hymns, focuses on the lost history of Nashville and the 2020 follow-up, Tiny Televisions, was inspired by Music Row stories in this book. You may have seen their videos on CMT. The pair live in Nashville, Tennessee, and regularly tour across the United States. While not a musician himself, Brian Allison was born and raised on stories of country music. His father, Joe, was a producer, songwriter, radio personality, and pioneer. And without his father's stories, this book would not have been possible. A professional historian, a museum consultant, and a writer, Brian is the author of two other books for the History Press, Murder and Mayhem in Nashville and Notorious Nashville. He, too, lives in the city. Vanessa, Brian, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Of course, of Thank course. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to say hello first. Now, Brian, your voice is going to be easy to recognize. But Elizabeth if you, and Vanessa, first, Elizabeth, will you say hello so we'll know who, what you sound like? I sound sort of like this on a good day. All right. And Vanessa? I sound like this. You will never mistake our voices. There you the go. <laughs> That's easy. I'm loud and boisterous, and she's soft and studious. So. Studious. That's great. <laughs> yeah. That's great. And now, Elizabeth and Vanessa, will you guys uh, tell us a little bit about how you guys got together to form your band? Um, well, uh, honestly, this is Vanessa speaking. Um, I don't even remember how we met. Neither one of us do. Uh, oddly, we were both part of the Atlanta music scene. And I was always a really big fan of her rock and roll band called The Swear. And we had talked about writing together and doing something together for years. Um, and finally, 
Um, I was in a position where I was looking for something new to do musically. And she was in a position where she was also kind of searching for something creatively a little bit different than what she'd done in the past. Um, so we decided like, hey, no time like the present. Let's try to write some songs and see what happens. Um, so we did that and it ended up being a magnificent pairing. Sometimes you get together with a new writer and it feels a lot like an awkward blind date. But um, but this this worked out pretty well. And we ended up writing, I guess, like maybe 20, 30 songs and then said, hey, I think we have something here. And so we became the band Granville Automatic. That was really well done. <laughs> Thank done. you. I can tell you've had your you, you've had your coffee. I have had my coffee, so I feel a little bit more put together right now. Hi, Brian. I haven't Hello. said hi to you. Hello. <laughs> I just felt like I should say something. You've been sitting over there quiet. I. Uh, that's what I do. <laughs> Me too, Brian. <laughs> Don't worry, Brian. I'm going to bring you in because I know when you start talking about history, historians get excited and they, they start jumping in. That's what we do. All right. So but the thing about this book in Nashville is that people go there from all over to sing their songs or to get the songs they've written and sung about other places, their, their experiences in life. But here the three of you have written about a little-known history of Music Row. And you have an accompany album, which is a follow-up to a 2018 album. And Brian, you and I have worked together before, and I know your great heart for history and your heart for the city of Nashville. Uh, but Elizabeth and Vanessa, uh, what grabbed you to write songs like this about this area and get with Brian to write this book? You want to take that, Elkins? I talked enough. Sure. You know, it it actually happened. The connection to Brian happened. Um, we were doing research for our last record, which was called Radio Hymns about Nashville. And I believe I just heard Brian was like the uh, one of the authorities on Nashville history. And he did. I actually saw him at the Southern Festival of Books, um, I think randomly. And I kind of got a little starstruck with, you know, Brian's knowledge and what he'd done. And then I believe, Brian, I may have seen you also at a Civil War roundtable at Fort Negley. Um, so I think you guys are nerds. <laughs> there's so, power in nerddom, Vanessa. <laughs> yep. Very true. Um, so I think I reached out. Brian maybe just said, hey, you know, Vanessa and I are working on this record. Would you mind letting us pick your brain on some stories? And we met up and at a coffee shop, as 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 people in Nashville tend to do, and and he gave us some incredible stories, and, and that album came out, and a piece ended up running in The Bitter Southerner on the album, and that's how you guys at the History Press sort of made the connection and reached out to Brian, I think, and said, is this a crazy idea or not? How, you know, how crazy are these girls? Can, can you all write a book together? And that's, that's when we all had to go, can we, and see what happened. And we did. Yes, you did. I have it in my hand right Magically. now. Magically. <laughs> it's incredible. And my wife loves the uh, picture with uh, Chris Christopherson's Shel Silverstein because my wife loves Shel Silverstein. Oh, amazing! So, yeah. I've always been a big Shel fan. She was super excited when I showed her that picture. Oh, that's awesome! Oh yeah. So what? Okay, so people might be wondering who who are listening who might not be country music fans who didn't grow up with country music like we did. What exactly is Music Row? I know there's a little bit of, you know, it's an ill, you know, some people define it one way, some people might define it another way. What What is y'all's definition of Music Row? Music Row is a physical place and a state of mind at the same time. 
That's a great answer, Brian. We should put that in the book. We did a little. I know. <laughs> we that that's our new catchphrase. Um, we did. We actually did a little. That, that's a great question, um, Johnny. And so at the top of the book, we have a little author's note where we we do put in the geographical boundaries, sort of that we were looking at. But I think Brian really really nailed it that it is a geographical place. But you know, it's used so offhand, um, so often as just a state of mind and a, a sort of a way of thinking as well. Um, and it's also sadly a place that's disappearing physically right now, very quickly, mm-hmm. um, almost more so in the last six months than I think I've ever seen. Brian, have you yeah. been over there recently? I have not been out of the house since March. I mean, <laughs> COVID has oh, pretty much no, killed that. So I assume that when I get back out of here, there will be spaceships and flying cars and everything will be glass and plastic well, over there. But you know. Well, the UA, the UA Tower is down, so that's strange already. But it is hmm. – um, I've driven through a few times, and it is um, – already very different i think as it becomes more and more expensive for people to maintain an office space on the row um people are getting kind of pushed out into places like berry hill um that are used to be a little less popular for um production studios and things like that but um now is becoming a lot more popular i think because of the price you're able to get there versus music row and and honestly to add to that i think the rise in uh, the quality of home uh, technology yes. makes an mm-hmm. office space in a lot of ways kind of redundant, and it's yep. less expensive just to have one in your basement, go actually to the uh, the engineer's house, and have him record you there. So yep. it's a number of factors that have, like everything, Music Row is Music Row is a physical place, but they all have their run. There, there's a time when you have to go there and do that way, and then things change and technology catches up. So like anything else, it's finite, and that's why increasingly it's becoming less of a a physical place Necessity. and more of a state of mind. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's so weird you said that because I just opened, you know, I just ha- I gr- uh, picked up the book again and I just happened to open it up and I opened it up to page sixty-two, and there's a picture on here and it just happens to show the site of Columbia Studio A, the site. Mm-hmm. It just goes to remind you, or even here in, in you know the city of Charleston, a place that prides itself on historic preservation and readaptive use of buildings where you keep the facade maybe the way it historically looks, but the inside is used for something different. You know, here we still have hotels going up, you know, on wetlands and places where it's, it's kind of the cityscape is changing. Um, you know, you would think you would want to try to preserve these sites where Cohen and Dylan recorded songs, you know, historic records at and things of that nature. Um, is there any kind of historic movement to try to preserve these places? There is, but I did want to point out just along those lines that the people that cut those records, the people that actually did the work, the engineers, mm-hmm. the studio musicians, the, the producers, all of them, they never saw Music Row as anything to brag about. In the weirdest way, because the reason they were there is it was it was a cheap, rundown neighborhood where they could afford the real estate. Yeah, and so they were getting these bargain basement houses, turning them into state of the art musicians. This is all back in the fifties and sixties, and from that small beginning, it grew into glass towers and things. But a lot of the great early records that made Music Row's career were cut in these dingy little places with, you know, where they'd ripped out walls to put in baffles that modified the house to where some of them were almost falling down at that point. So they never, a lot of times, a lot, people would come to Nashville in the 50s and 60s looking for Music Row, 
And there's even cartoons in the local papers, you know, showing how stunned they are to see what a rundown neighborhood it was. There's dive bars everywhere. Now, it, it went upscale after that. In the 70s and 80s, you know, after a while, it started growing and proper music companies started putting big glass towers up. But at its prime, no, nobody saw that as historic. They were just, like, glad they could afford the real estate and find a cheap house where they could put in a nice studio. So it was more the sound that was coming out to them was more important than where they were cutting it. Years later, they would look back on it fondly. But honestly, a lot of those houses were about gone anyway in the early days. So wow. it's, it's, it's an irony that such beauty and such art came out of the most unlikely of places. And that, that Brian's so right. That's the challenge of that space. And I do a lot of work in historic preservation. And there are very difficult arguments uh, that, that jump from exactly what Brian said. This, you know, this was really about, you know, musicians, especially in the beginning, are not generally wealthy people. And you're just looking for a place you can afford to live and hang out and make music with your friends. And that's what that was about. Now, there, you know, Vanessa and I have been have been professional writers on song, on Music Row for the last six years. And that still exists, but it exists in a very different way. And the question is, how do you how and can you preserve the magic of the space mm -hmm. that created these great records when the music industry is a constantly evolving situation? Obviously, it, you know, the glass towers went up in you know, the 80s and 90s, and some of those glass towers just came down in the last couple months. But they you know, went up because country music was selling millions and millions of records worldwide, and then something called Napster showed up and changed the industry forever. Um, so it is it is complicated, um, and because those spaces are so small, and many of them are just little houses, um, you know, what kind of adaptive reuse is there? And also, how do you deal with affordable housing for incoming and beginning mm. musicians and songwriters who just moved to town, and now these rents uh, have, have skyrocketed? So lots of big, big issues with preservation and and uh and urban design and planning in that area. And they always have been. I think Brian can attest to there have always been crazy ideas with what to do with it and how to do it. Well, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I like what Brian said about it being more about the energy and the music that was coming out of the space rather than the space itself. And it reminds me a lot of Sun Studio because that studio wasn't particularly like state of the art in, at in the Memphis, time. Yeah. In Memphis, yes. But um, but they talk about when they moved the, the building, they mm -hmm. moved buildings, they built an entirely new studio, and it didn't maintain the same magic. And that magic was what made the sound. So there, I think there's an argument to the energy within a building, too. Absolutely. And the talent <clears throat> of the people that go into it. I mean, mm -hmm. Bradley, and uh, when, when he sold the original Quonset Hut studio, he, there's a famous story that uh, a bunch of suits from New York came down and bought it, and I mean, he cleaned up on that sale. He was able oh, to, yeah. to, to move uh, an entire career on that because they wanted to know what was the secret. And yep. he had put uh, sheets as baffles at the top. He was doing, doing this all kind of like, I okay, that sounds uh, hollow. Well, put something in there. Put a filler here. Put a baffle here. He would just do it kind of jigsaw until he had the perfect sound right. He had perfect pitch. Mm -hmm. Well, they came in, and they kept looking at that ceiling and kept looking at the ceiling. And as he was leaving, after he'd finalized the sale, he was leaving. He went back to his car, came back into the building, and those suits from New York were up on a ladder looking under the sheets. And one of them looked at him and said, hey, there's nothing but sheets up here, he said. I told you. And he walked out. Oh, my God. There was no secret so mechanism. Funny. It was just a very talented group of musicians and engineers that made the perfect pitch sound. They were given free yep. reign, and that's what they did. Yep. 
And I think people are going to start getting creative like that again as the economy begins to tank right now with everything that's happening. Um, So maybe it will create this sort of renaissance of people getting creative again and beginning to make, you know, new sounds that people aren't doing right now. And, And I don't know. I'm really hoping that it sparks people creatively to try to do something different and to be truly inventive like people were back in the day. Well, the one nice thing about history is it's never truly in the past. It's always evolving. <laughs> You're yeah. correct. I mean, we're kind of living in that historical time right now. I mean, that's why, you know, I've made sure to, you know, go back and journal this year. People who, I mean, and I hope Brian, you know, I hope you're doing that too, because you're so good at doing that with history, you know. I, I'm just living at that, with that, that meme that I see on the internet that says, I'm, I, I just once I'd like to go back to living in precedented times. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. Yep. I want to go back to living in precedented times. <laughs> All right, so well, Vanessa and Elizabeth, the way you guys write songs and the stories about history, it kind of reminds me of a you know. Speaking of being creative, it's really it's almost like it's your own your own take. You're kind of doing your own th- thing with like with your modern tribute to the way older older kind of country songs, you know. Yeah, tell a story. You know, I don't, you know, kind of a, if you know what I mean, not like a Johnny Horton or a Cash thing, but the way you're you're going back here, you're actually trying to like tell a historical story with your songs, and it's great the way oh, you're doing well, thank this. You. And you make it thank your you own. So much. And Elizabeth, I know your answer to this, I think, and especially, I mean, knowing your background with, you know, even antiques, because I grew up on the antique, with, you know, in the antique business too. Um, I know you used to write for an antique magazine. Um, and it sounds like you have a love for history. Um, but how deep for each of you has, is your love of history? Well, I think, and Vanessa and I, when we started the band, it was initially, we wanted, I'm glad you said that because we wanted to tell, we felt the, the art of storytelling in music was disappearing. And that was important to us. So it has evolved over the years um, into various songs, some thematically based around um, history and some just regular old songs. But for me, you know, I, it really is, I have to say, I am a history buff. Um, I, I started kind of around high school. I got super interested in particular in wars and started getting obsessed with the war at a time and learning everything I could. But I think for us, too, as songwriters, it's there's something very liberating about getting into a different story, getting out of yourself a little bit and looking for those universal human emotions that, that show up over and over again in, in stories from history. No matter the perspective, you start seeing these themes over and over again, and they feel very modern. And I think our goal has been to, like for the song, for example, Tiny Televisions, which is the title track, trying to inhabit what someone who is you know, 80 or 90 years old sitting in a nursing home watching this tiny television as things unfold like the Kennedy assassination, like Vietnam, like the protests in the streets that we're seeing. And now like COVID, year. it's like we're the mental patients in the hospital, the old people in the hospital watching the world go by now. So it's an interesting parallel, ended yeah. up being an interesting parallel unintentionally, but... Yeah, so trying really it's been refreshing because we do professionally when we write for other artists and for our own projects, we're writing our own personal emotions so often. And it's really nice to to find these other places to write from. Um, and I think they've taught us those stories have taught us a lot as songwriters, too. And honestly, for me, I've been a professional historian most of my adult life and I grew up in it. Uh, and what the challenge is for me is to to tell the stories that generally slip through the cracks that people don't want to remember 
uh, I grew up in the country music industry. My father was um, uh, was a songwriter, a producer, the whole nine yards. That's not remembered very well in Nashville. And Nashville is notorious for having a short memory and celebrating its heroes and letting a lot of other heroes slip by the wayside. So for me, it is, it's the same sort of thing, is that, that trying to tell a story that might otherwise be forgotten, trying to preserve that history in, in print, and trying to tell a story, a human story that you can actually relate to, uh, that's really what drives me all the way through. So it was able to, uh, you know, I grew up with the, my dad was an antique dealer after he got out of the, uh, the industry. Uh, he was a Renaissance man. So to be able to tie my childhood memories, my background, the history of the town and the forgotten stories together was a once in a lifetime opportunity for me. Vanessa. Mm-hmm. How about you? How, she, do you have a deep tie to history or? I'm sorry. Do you have a tie to history at all before you started I writing mean, these songs? I, I do. Again, when when we started Granville, it started off as mostly just an avenue for for us to tell stories, and and not necessarily historically based stories. M- much of it was fiction in the early incarnation of the band. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it as it sort of progressed, I I remember being in the car one day and looking at Elizabeth and saying, you know what. We love stories. You love history, specifically, Elizabeth. Um, But the band sort of pushed me to, um, I don't know, get a little deeper into my love of history um, through storytelling. So I think I became more of a historian um, through my friendship with Elizabeth and through creating this band together. Um, It gave me an opportunity to learn, which is, I think, the best gift in the world. Um, and it, it really encouraged me to dig deeper into history and, and find out more. Um, and I've really just enjoyed the process of, of becoming a historian. <laughs> she gets, yeah. I will say, Vanessa gets more fascinated by stories. Like we can start talking about history and her brain just goes somewhere with these stories and they almost become magical. So I think it is, um, one thing that's interesting about the three of us is we all come at history slightly differently. And I think that's part of, um, the magic that happened in the book, seeing those different perspectives. And also when Vanessa and I write, those combinations of how we all kind of come into it from a different place has made it a really interesting process. Yeah, I think the three different voicings ended up being a real boon to the book. And oh, yeah. and uh, pe- people have already you know mentioned to me just how much they really enjoyed the different voicings and having different perspectives. Um, so I don't know. I, I really think it's it's a plus. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I think people are going to enjoy it. All right, last question for each of you. Um, I want you all to give me uh, a favorite from the book, a favorite story from the book, if you don't mind. Uh, Elizabeth, <laughs> let's start with you. Sure. Um, I'm you know I'm a big fan of ghosts and and you know seen a lot of ghosts in my life. And Vanessa and I've had a lot of ghost experiences. And uh, there was a beautiful building that used to sit next to um, actually near. Um, all the Columbia studio stuff on 16th. And it was a publishing company called combine. And one of the uh, guy named Woody Bomar who worked there for years told me a lot of ghost stories. They named the ghost. They had all kinds of great stories about this ghost, um, female ghost. And there was a famous band and he wouldn't say who it was that flew in to make a record there uh, all the way from Los Angeles. And they got to Nashville and the first day the ghost showed up and they literally got flights home the next morning. They were awesome. I love that story. That's awesome. Vanessa? Brian, you want to go next? Oh, Oh, sorry. Okay. (laughs) Either one of us. Who's going? Um, I'll go. 
So uh, one of my favorite stories from the book, can it be a story like about the process of writing the book? Is of course. Okay? Yeah. All right. So um, my favorite story, I guess this ended up being my favorite story. It wasn't at the time. Um, I got the unique opportunity to interview Mr. Chris Gantry, who is the, the person that gave me all those beautiful photos of Chris Opperson and Shell. And um, what an interesting guy he is. We had a wonderful interview. First time it had taken me like four reschedules to get this back on the books because he's a busy dude. And um, finally we met up at this park, had this amazingly perfect interview. Nothing went wrong. He told me so much juicy gossip. I was so excited to write it all down. I went to go press stop um, on my phone to end the recording and the recording decided to disappear into thin air, never to be found again. <laughs> so, that was uh, when Brian and Elizabeth said that I was officially a writer, because um, I guess that's a that's a rite of passage for that sort of thing. <laughs> so, um, so I ended up having to do the interview again. He was gracious enough to give me another opportunity, and I did. And of course, it it probably wasn't as good as the first interview, but he was a real trooper, and I got the information I needed, and it. It ended up being a learning experience, so it was all in all all right. That's great. Writing is always never enough time to do it right, but always enough to do it over, so remember that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm torn. There's two, just, there's, I was proud of outing the, uh, of finding out the uh, the identity of the music, uh, the music, uh, the Country Music Hall of Fame um, uh, soap bandit the one that threw the suds in the fountain and uh, i couldn't have done that without diane dickerson if you if you want anything done in this town you ask one of the old-time secretaries because they know where all the bodies are buried and uh, she was even surprised at her own detective skills in, in finding that but for me i'd say above all the chapter i wrote on the um the uh the the sources of country music the painting by thomas hart benton how that came about how several great minds, Benton himself, who was such a controversial and incredible, talented man, but flawed at the same time, uh, how my father figured into that and how Tex Ritter uh, figured into it, all these names that are no longer household names uh, anymore. That, to me, was wonderful because it, it fulfilled that feeling of telling a story that slipped through the cracks, telling a story that not a lot of people got to hear and giving it a little wider uh, audience and of course for my father's role in it it was a very personal story and uh, personal journey for me so all the way through i'd say that would be my favorite chapter in the whole book that's awesome that's some great stories and the book's incredible i'm glad i get to uh be part of working with you all three of you on it i'm glad to work with brian again i always like working with brian uh he's always such a joy to work with and i'm glad I've, i'm getting to uh, uh work with elizabeth and vanessa uh, such a great We're book. Excited to work with you too. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so much fun. You're, Thank y'all for talking with me. Yeah. Thanks for talking you're, with me today. Thank you so much. I right. so enjoyed it. You right. can't wait till the next one. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Thanks again, Elizabeth, Vanessa, and Brian. And thank you, the audience, for listening. Hidden History of Music Row is available now at ArcadiaPublishing.com and wherever local books are sold. And I want to thank Janeville's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song. You can check them out on Facebook by searching for Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project and on Instagram as well. 
If you have questions or future episode ideas, you can reach me by email at arcadiaauthorconversations at gmail.com. And we're going to close out the podcast with a song from Elizabeth and Vanessa's band, Granville Automatic's latest album, which is also the title track, Tiny Televisions. Enjoy. Yeah.